we don't teach people how important friendship is, but research shows that it's loneliness and isolation is more damaging than smoking 20 cigarettes a day. In America, um, 55.5 million people quit in 2022. And that wow. tidal wave shifted the power from the uh, corporates and the organization to the individual. And technology has the power to connect these individuals. People matter. Any idea you have, any change you want to make as a business, any business strategy is only as strong as the people. Sometimes people change without thinking through the effect. People always believe we have to change. Sometimes we don't have to change. It's as important to ask the question, do we need to change? Welcome to your favorite voice of business psychology, the Psych and Success Podcast. I'm your host, Kritka Kashyap. Guys, I have been waiting for this episode. I'm so thrilled to have Ingrid Covington with us. She is an award-winning chartered work and organizational psychologist, a visionary in leadership, culture change and well-being, and a champion for creating communities that thrive. From the corridors of NATO to the forefront of psychological innovation, Ingrid's insights promise to transform the way we think about success, belonging, and the power of human connection. Without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Ingrid. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Psych and Success. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. So Ingrid, you know, when I connected to you, I had been following you and your work since a long time through LinkedIn. You have such great work in the field of organizational psychology or IO psychology. So why don't you introduce yourself first to the listeners? Well, that's very kind of you to say. I appreciate um, you giving such generous comments. And as you say, I am a chartered psychologist in the UK. We call it occupational psychology in Europe, where I'm based now. We call it work and organizational psychology. And in the US, we call it IO psychology, which is industrial organizational. So it can be quite confusing, but uh, fundamentally, Mm. it's really about a psychology of the workplace. What conditions can we create to help uh, individuals survive at work? And so it's a, a career that, I absolutely love because being able to make an impact individually, um, team-wise and organizationally is really rewarding. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a little bit more about my personal story, I started my career as a branch manager at Nationwide Building Society. So when I did my um, degree, in order to go into occupational psychology as a profession, you actually had to get a job first. So I got a job Mm. as a manager. And I think there's a lot of um, sense um, to that requirement because it means you actually get experience leading, managing in an organization. So I was young with no experience. There were people in the team very well experienced. And Mm. you you have to have a lot of humility to build relationships where people feel comfortable helping you and don't feel that you're this young, um, smart, kid who um, taking over and got the title of the manager so it was a very Mm. humbling experience but from there yeah but from um from that experience I learned a lot really about uh leading people motivating achieving high performance and went Mm. to do my master's degree at 
expert back in organizational psychology and became chartered. And since then, I've worked in many different settings, but most recently in an international setting. So I've been working with NATO, um, an international organization with um, soon to be 32 um, member nations. So wow. it's extremely rewarding working with military and civilians on um, NATO protects nearly 1 billion people around the world. So it's really meaningful to work um, and support an organization that is making such a contribution uh, in the world at this mm. time. Yeah, that must be very fulfilling for you as well as an individual contributing to such an organization. It, it really hasn't. Although I started my time at NATO working inside the organization for the past four years, I've been a member of the community. And my main focus has been on building a stronger community and a sense of well-being mm. across the entire international community. So I have my I founded my own program called Staying Well Together at SHE. Okay. And it really is um, highlighting the importance of connectivity, how important it is to feel we belong somewhere, we're connected to something bigger than us, and we feel a part of something. And I do uh, monthly articles. I run all sorts of different activities where I bring people together, build friendships, build relationships, and um, help people map out a path for what uh, will help them become um, resilient and um, stay strong in these challenging times. Wow, that's amazing. So we will come back to um, your um, community that you are telling us about. I wanted to understand more about what made you get into organizational psychology uh, in this industry? Because, I mean, I think you must have started working way back uh, because I believe you have at least like 15, 20 years of experience now. Uh, and organizational psychology is still in, um, let's say, developing countries is not a well-known area of works even now. So how come organizational or occupational psychology came to you? I think that's a great question. And I think uh, I really appreciate you highlighting the fact that the uh, discipline of psychology has developed differently around the world. I think that's really important to acknowledge. A few years ago, I, and I will get back to your um, answering your question, but just to um, highlight how important it is to acknowledge that when we're talking about organizational psychology, it, it is really reflected um, um, by the specific society that you're um, supporting. So we had a keynote speaker for the Division of Occupational Psychology annual conference. That's the um, Division mm. uh, of Occupational Psychology for the British Psychological Society. And I was involved yeah. in, in um, organizing um, the conference. And we had an absolutely fabulous keynote speaker so Herminia Abara, and okay. speaking about career transitions. And mm. it was the first online conference we ever had. And we had a special program where 30 students from Ghana were given complimentary access to the conference. We really think it's important to build uh, relationships around the world and an understanding of the different theories and how they do apply in different environments. And it was very mm -hmm. interesting. One of the students who I later became a mentor uh, to, he said, 
the whole idea of being able to transition a career and say, this isn't um, fulfilling me anymore. I, I, I need a more rewarding career. It's a luxury of the West. Here in Ghana, we don't have that luxury. We need to survive. And so the yes. concept is alien to us. And that, for me, was a, a, such important feedback and awareness that, yeah, it is different around the world. And therefore, how we're evolving, we can... And actually, the, um, the professor there has since reached out to me and they're trying to work at the government level to strengthen uh, organisational hmm. psychology because it can influence policy as well as practice at a societal level. And yeah. they, they turn to the British Psychological Society as one of the much more firmly established um, mm. in the world for this profession and ask if we would help them develop their uh, ethical um, and professional uh, boundaries and approach when working with the government. So we can yeah. support them, but also recognise and understand that we're at different stages and therefore some of the things we're focused on might not be relevant um in a right environment but sorry to get back to your question as with i think it's i i love the fact that you're asking these questions and it's really important to hear people's journeys because you realize actually most people's journeys are, are really um higgle difficulties like a ball <laughs> so you know you can't really yeah 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 ah and and absolutely that's that's important to understand because sometimes when you're in a mid-career, you might feel, oh my gosh, where am I going? What's happening in my life? And I think that's especially the case if you're brave enough. And I think you do need to be brave to have the career in our profession. You need to be very brave because there aren't many clearly structured paths. True. If you're, uh, if you get employed by the government, that's uh, one structured path. There are some organizations that specialize in selection and assessment. Other than that, we really are uh, independent practitioners. So you yeah, yeah. find your uh, path. Yeah, because a lot of people that I have met who are organizational psychologists or in this area of work, a lot of them do not even come from an educational background like that at all. And later in life, they educate themselves or they get certified they're either like people coming from engineering background, from HR background, from all other different walks of life. And then they somehow stumble upon um, organizational psychology or people development. What I've always said is, um, and uh, my friend Taz often um, quotes me on this, but it wasn't my idea. It was um, uh, somebody else, a, a very uh, influential scientist who said this, that the, the point at which two disciplines meet is where the most innovation takes place. And he's developed um, some uh, really important um, treatments for cancer. And he was he came from an engineering background and then later studied biology. So, uh, wow. so I, be I believe it's um, it can only benefit our profession and society by being much more flexible and welcoming to people coming at different stages in their career with different disciplines and backgrounds. That's how we're going to uh, come up with more innovative solutions uh, and have a, a bigger impact, I, I believe. I agree, yes. Mm. So, yes, you were telling about how your journey that's so, started. Yeah, so I actually just, um, I really wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And okay. I'm, I'm not alone in that. Many people uh, wanted to be a clinical psychologist when, um, when I did my undergraduate in psychology hmm. why is that 
one of the reasons why is because it's the most easily understood. Society understands what a clinical psychologist is, so we have a better understanding. If you, I've already said at the start, we're called organizational, IO, uh, people have no really real understanding still now of the profession. So it's very difficult when you go to school and college to develop that as a, a career path because the, the understanding and awareness still lacks. Mm. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I didn't understand what other options there were. It was highly competitive. There were only um, eight regions in the UK where they sponsored, or it might have been 12, where they sponsored you know, just two or three places. And people had PhDs. People had been applying for five, 10 years and still didn't get a place. Okay. So I, um, so I applied and didn't get accepted on the first attempt and then decided how committed am I to this as a path? It could be 10 years from here before I get accepted. Do I want to continue on this path? And actually I thought, let me look at what other options there are in psychology. And um, it, it turns out that one of the options was organizational and that was even more appealing to me. And it was the best decision I ever made. Wonderful. And coming back to, you know, uh, the community building that you're talking about, what was the name again? Staying well together. What drove you to build this community personally? I mean, outside we do understand uh, the well-being is important of the um, employees. The productivity for the organization is very uh, crucial. But then internally, what drove you to build such a community? It was in response to COVID. So I moved to the international community. Um, it's the military arm of NATO. It's called SHE. Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers in Europe, and okay. it's in um, it's in Belgium. And it, as I mentioned before, there are thirty-two member nations, almost as many partner nations, so about fifty different nationalities, all living in the community. Wow. I moved in August twenty nineteen to live here full time with my two daughters because my husband um, is based here. He has been for many years, and within six months we had lockdown. Mm. So I, um, I, I'd actually realized that when I first arrived at the community, I was in a very fortunate position for many reasons. I have an outgoing personality and I'm resourceful. So I, for example, I play tennis, so I set up my own um, tennis club. You know, I, I wasn't confident enough to be proactive. When COVID hit um, and we had lockdown, I thought, what about these people far away from home where English is not their first language or French, which is the majority of the community. And they're isolated. What if they've not had a chance to build friendships or join any groups? There's a danger they'll be highly, highly isolated and lonely. I also have a friend based at Shape who's a midwife and she okay. made me aware that the, the risk factors for postpartum depression were increasing in the cases that she was assessing so the risk was very real so I identified the the main risks which were barrier to um, uh, language barriers and um, mm. physical isolation and I was so I reached out to some of the friends who I'd met here who were also psychologists and we we I built the program with their support it turns out within the community we had psychiatrists here we had 
clinical psychologists, educational psychologists here. I was the only organizational psychologist, family oh. psychologists, and they all came together because I developed this vision that let's let's stay strong together. So I communicated um, to the shared leadership as well as the community that um, we are only as strong as our weakest link. We need mm. to strengthen one another. We need to understand what makes us feel safe and well and what makes the community feel safe and well. So I developed a whole program of activities that were COVID-friendly, such as a work yeah. and talk program. So I, I developed work and talk programs for um, new mums, for mm. members of the community, I developed uh, language buddy programs to help people meet a friend who could help them um, learn and practice English so it became less of a barrier. I set up all sorts of uh, special interest groups and also did a, a which I still do, a um, monthly article in our community life that gets printed 3,000 copies and sent around the entire community with wow. 6,000 people. I, I do a monthly article teaching people and making them aware of different aspects of our of well-being and such as how to make friends as adults which actually, that is brilliant yeah that's yeah, um, that's such a you know crucial yet difficult thing to do because people are so engaged and just involved in their own life yeah and if you think about um making friends we we start school we got uh let's say five years old it could uh so what nation you're in, what country you're in. You, you join school and you have to fumble your way through making friends. Um, no, you, you're never not taught how to make friends and you never get taught how important friends are. Yeah. So I run workshops on friendship building because as a result of social media, as a result mm. of COVID, we're seeing more and more people lonely and isolated. In fact, a recent report said nearly 15% of the US adults said they didn't have a friend. And that's increasing. Wow. And the skill to build that's friends. That's huge numbers. We, we, we don't teach the skills, just like we don't teach people how to have a happy marriage. We don't teach people how important friendship is. But research shows that it's loneliness and isolation is more damaging than smoking 20 cigarettes a day. It's harmful yeah. Full health, as well as our mental health, and building friendships is is protects us. It it mm. helps to shield us from the challenges we face in life, and it really helps to enrich our enjoyment of life. So I I think that's one of the number one one skills. And in fact, I'm also doing a PhD, and mm. one of, and that is my topic of interest, which is the role of friendships in organisations. I'm focusing especially on the high-ranking leaders because the higher up the ranks, the lonelier it becomes. And uh, yeah. building, building honest friends is, I believe, critical to career success, to leadership, and to our well-being. And it's an under-researched topic, and it's you know, it's not understood and appreciated. I don't believe so. Yeah, my number one um, kind of um, passion right now is to really promote people's awareness of how important friendships are and give them the confidence to be brave enough to go out there and build some friendships. Yeah, because I believe in today's world, especially, um, this is such a valuable skill for the lack of word, I'll say, to have. Because with 
you know, with technology coming in, with AI being so powerful, it is these soft skills which would now help us not just with our well-being and mental health, but also to progress in life, in be it in professional or personal life. And yeah, because I had been, um, you know, even with my own journey as an adult going to a new country, although I was fortunate that because I started with university and university friends also go their own ways. It becomes so difficult to, you know, build good relations with people. And it is constant effort that I have for myself getting out of my comfort zone in a new continent altogether that I'll say um, to do that. And I am so glad that you are doing such an effective and a valuable study and workshops that you're conducting for people around um, Europe and other other parts of the world. That's amazing. And welcome yeah. you for getting out of your comfort zone, being <laughs> so pro proactive. This uh, podcast you do is wonderful. Uh, you know, you're being proactive and you're, um, I always say to people, feel the fear and do it anyway, you know. Um, you know, because often um, what we fear um, will, will never happen. And we, the more we fear it, the uh, it, we do increase the chances it will happen. It happen. So it's really yeah. important to just say we all feel this way. And I, I would just before you go into this question, there's mm -hmm. a, a wonderful TED talk out there, and it's about the space between self-esteem and self-compassion. And the the TED talker, the professor, you know, she's a wonderful lady who explains that the way society, especially Western. Uh, society has evolved it's built all around self-esteem and everyone mm. is socialized to be above average well that's impossible nobody it's impossible for a whole society to be above average in everything so um it's causing uh, increases in narcissistic behavior it's increasing mm. um, uh, isolation because people feel they can't compete so they withdraw mm. It's also exacerbated by social media because we um, we are selective in what we show to our yeah. friends and to society. I know somebody who, Simon Toms, who I've worked with at the British Psychological Society, he supervises many students and one of them was looking at the role of LinkedIn and how it yeah. impacts our self-confidence and self-esteem when we're trying to enter the workplace and develop a profession. And in fact, it's more harmful because we compare okay. ourselves and believe that other people are succeeding more than we are. And we struggle to find our voice. We struggle to feel that we're able to say something unique because there are all these algorithms feeding through other more dominant voices. And, you know, so it can really impact your confidence in yourself. So I think it's so, so well done you for finding your voice through the podcast and through whatever else you're doing. And anyone who's listening to this, I encourage them to be brave enough to try and cancel out the noise around them and listen to their own inner voice and build a friendship, somebody who you can trust, who can guide you and encourage you rather than comp comparing yourself against the rest of the world. That That's um, a, a place that will just leave you feeling terrible, I yeah. think. How do you then see the next generation 
well-being, the next generation as in Gen Z, who are now what, 26, 27 years, the oldest generation, is how do you see them different or evolving with the well-being and their mental health? Because, you know, for them, COVID happened in their college or university time, in their very initial stage of getting into the corporates and going out and about making friends as, as adults. I um, Again, an excellent uh, question. And I was having this conversation just over Christmas with some uh, Gen Z's, um, one who's uh, recently graduated and got his first job. He's 23. And his mm. brother, who is um, 26, both um, American, um, very prestigious um, universities they graduated from. And we had this very conversation because we were talking about the um, what it's like to try and date uh, where one of your only options is online and with apps. And they were saying it's a, really a horrible um, experience. You, you feel judged, you feel... Um, you lack confidence. You, you you feel that in a second, your um, mm. everything that you stand for and represent can be judged one way or another. If you look at some of the societies, like uh, I was in Japan in okay. October. If you look at Japan mm. and Korea, and a lot of the uh, Gen Z there, they're becoming more and more isolated because of what I explained before about the the technology. Technology enables you to isolate. That's uh, mm. But interestingly, so so I and COVID has meant that hybrid working has become the yeah. norm, and for many Gen Z or people graduating or entering for the first time a workplace, work is like a family to them. It's a way for them to build up their confidence and their skills, and we learn just as much from the observing how others do the job than we do actually doing the job ourselves. So um, with hybrid working and um, home working, remote working, even though it might feel convenient, it's actually impacting our real ability to build these networks, confidence in the um, in the workplace. So it does have lots of drawbacks. Interestingly, yeah. when I was talking to the two gentlemen I was mentioning, they said there are obviously plus sides, and for them. Mm. They feel more connected. And I think this goes to a really important point. We're starting to see changes now, but there was a whole tidal wave movement mm -hmm. of, uh, of COVID called the the um, grand resignation. Um, when oh. in, in America, 55.5 um, million people quit in 2022. And that wow. tidal wave shifted the power from the uh, corporates and the organization to the individual. And technology has the power to connect these individuals. So um, so my advice is look at the advantages that technology can offer you. It can offer you an ability to connect and have a voice with other people, your agency. This is what I'm experiencing. This is how I'm feeling about the challenges in the workplace. How are you feeling? And it allows those conversations to build where I think organizations have to listen. Because if you look at, um, I, I often use examples of uh, military because that's the world I've lived in for the past 10 plus years. 
but a okay. famous book by Sun Tzu called The Art of War says one of the ways that um, we win a war is dividing and conquering. We divide and conquer. So if you want to have power, if you want to feel empowered, you've got to do the opposite of that and you've got to unite. Yeah. So, um, so, so my advice to the Gen Z or anybody who's feeling more lonely and isolated is silence the voices in your head that tell you you're not good enough and uh, that sound fear. Be brave enough to reach out and have your voice heard and you will find comfort in connection and you will be empowered through the connections you'll make. And those connections have much more impact if you can join them up and present and say, mm -hmm. this is an issue many of us are experiencing, not just this is my issue. Yeah, yeah. Sense. And that is so true, Ingrid, because from my own experience, I'm, I would say I'm almost a Gen Z. That is how we connected. I just messaged you on LinkedIn and you were so kind to have a conversation, have a chit chat, help me out with my stuff. And today, now we are, uh, you are on our podcast. And there were so many people, like I, I had approached a lot of people and most of them are so kind and very giving, very helpful. It actually just takes us that courage to message them or to just say that hey let's let's meet for a coffee or just let's chat sometime whenever you're free and that's about it so in my experience that has helped tremendously and I am just doubling down on building more and more connection meeting new people because that is how I feel very you know live and energized for myself and that is how I love working so that you have put it like brilliantly for the people who are facing any sort of, um, you know, confidence issue or self-esteem issue, seeing the bright glim glam world that people put it, put on social media. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're saying, um, invariably you've had positive experiences and people are kind. That's really, um, heartwarming to hear um i'm so happy you've had that experience of being brave enough but if you look at um, the evolution of uh, organizational psychology they've carried out many many studies of people in the workplace we've studied humans in all sorts of contexts and the one salient factor that has been seen regardless of what we're studying why we're studying when we're studying is that humans in the workplace have this innate desire to feel interconnected with the people around them and have a sense of belonging, feel we can relate in some positive way that reinforces our values, our beliefs, and our sense of purpose. So how we, how we achieve that um, is changing, but the need remains the same. And that's we all need to feel part of something bigger. We all need to feel connected to something that reinforces and gives us a real real belief that we can make a contribution in the world. So when you say that the feeling of belongingness is very innate to every human being and it is not about the past or at present how things are going, as an occupational psychologist, how do you help organizations to create that space of belongingness, be it you know, in your experience, military or working with the corporates? 
Great question. It's a work in progress for, for sure. Um, we learn a lot as organizations and organizational psychologists from the field of sport, sport psychology. So if you look mm. at the um teams like the um, England football team, you know, or South African cricket team, you know, they're a really big part of a culture and a nation and their story, yeah. their journey is very important to every individual who feels they belong to that nation. So it's very visible and very relatable. And we can learn so much about how you build a team and achieve high performance through that. And somebody mm. who I have the privilege of working with is called Owen Eastwood. He, okay. has, um, he worked with the uh, UK um, football team. He has worked with the uh, New Zealand All Blacks, with the South African cricket team. He's worked with some of the world's um, leading national teams. And he's um, written a book um, called Belonging, the Art of Togetherness. And he has he's from New Zealand and he, he has um, learned and reflected so much about his culture, as a, uh, the Maori culture. But what does it teach us? How can organisations... How can leaders understand how to create a sense of belonging? And there are some um, really, really important underpinning um, principles. And many organisations are starting to take, yeah. starting to to recognise this. So we're starting to have a shift away from this annual performance review to much more of a coaching and mentoring role. So that that is. Mm one um, positive uh, shift that will create the right climate. We need to also look at psychological safety. How do we create yeah. circles of safety in organizations? And also diversity. How do we really embrace diversity and help individuals within the organization to be much more culturally sensitive and aware that we're not all mm. the same? We don't all have the same uh, background. We don't all have the the same uh, beliefs and characteristics and actually we that should be a strength now it's a real challenge because if you look at the an organization and what we call the c-suite so the um, yeah. top activities of an organization and um, historically the the number one subject that will lead to you being um, uh, made chief executive or uh, making the cut for the c-suite would be if you've got finance as a background okay the, so um, there's, um, if you look at um, um, behavioral reinforcement, you know, what mm -hmm. gets measured gets done. So what we choose to focus mm -hmm. on, the behavior that we are going to create in an organization. So yeah. organizations have the opportunity to say, this is what we're going to measure. This is what we're going to care about. Now, hmm. fortunately, what the research is showing is that HR... As a, as a profession that might represent organizational psychology and um, um, uh, uh, the whole area where we focus on culture, inclusion, leadership. Right. And HR is um, probably one of the most underrepresented aspects of this week. There are green shoots, there are positive examples. So the um, chief executive of Chanel, the big fashion chief, they've recruited. Yeah. A chief executive with a HR background, the sort of General Motors. 
So we're seeing a shift. We're seeing big, big uh, financial organizations where they do have the need to perform. They're recognizing that understanding human behavior, understanding how to create a culture that glues the organization together, that strengthens it, that strengthens the individual, is an asset to financial um, sustainability and performance. So we're seeing that uh, shift. There's been a big um, uh, survey that took place in America. Mm-hmm. 4,000 C-suite executives, 70% of them said they see the function of HR becoming increasingly important in organizations, which is wow. great to see. 63% of those said that they feel they under, they need to understand more about HR. So there's the gap. We need to bridge the gap because I think a big majority of executives don't have a background in HR, unless there's a crisis mm. so, um, such as COVID or a law that gets um, introduced where organizations need an answer. HR is really misunderstood and not really seen as a, a strategic partner by the majority of organizations. So I've mentioned we're seeing uh, a move in the right direction. But um, as an organizational psychologist, we can bring to the attention of leaders the the direct impact that their people will have on the, the longevity and success of their organization. But they need yeah. to follow it through with principles where the people the culture of value does much as the financial performance and where they understand that actually they're one and the same. So um, just before we started this chat, I, uh, I mentioned I'm heading to the States tomorrow. Yeah. I'm flying I'm flying to Philadelphia, um, staying with some family before I move, uh, fly on to Houston. And um, they asked me, um, what would you like me to get in for breakfast? And I said, oh, I'm craving the bagels because when I was there last year, there's this amazing in philadelphia this amazing mm. um, bagel place but it's really big it's a it's a meeting place for the community it's this huge beautiful okay. building where you can get it's open all day and evening to the evening where you can get food drinks and they had the, the best bagels in philadelphia well um i've been informed that it's it's shut down this thriving business has shut down mm. Because they tried oh. to union, they tried to unionize the you know, business and it fell apart. Now, um, where, what's, why am I bringing this up as an issue? Um, people matter. Yeah. Any idea you have, any change you want to make as a business, any business strategy, is only as strong as the people. Sometimes sure. people, sometimes people change without thinking through the effect. People always believe we have to change. Sometimes we don't have to change. It's as important to ask the question, do we need to change right now as it is to say, we have to change, do we have to change when? So we we have a presumption that we we have to change things rather than saying, actually, are people fatigued by the change? Will they be able to buy into the change? Will they be able to relate to the change? We've got to humanize organizations and the more we see C-suite executives making sure they not only understand HR, but spend some time in that little function and see the value of making sure that we have individuals who want to be part of that organization, 
and who want to yeah. stay in that organisation and want to contribute to its purpose. That will um, be a day that I'm uh, really looking forward to. And I do see movements in that direction, but there's still a long way to go. Hmm. So, you know, when you were saying, talking about change and is it too overwhelming for people? So I was reading about, I was reading this Howard Business Review article, which was talking about transformational deficit that people or managers are now overwhelmed with the constant change and they are not ready to change anymore. It is uh, very too much for them that that constant changing and as even as a organizational psychologist or manager or a leader rather in this changing environment where because externally things are changing in organizations uh, people are trying and testing out things then how would you recommend employees or leaders to balanced out things as you say that you know we need to humanize organizations there's um a, a really great um management guru called rosabeth moss canter uh, okay she uh, she's written several books around change one is called change masters and she she said change is something the top ask the middle to do to the bottom. And yeah, unfortunately, she wrote that book in the 90s. And unfortunately, that's still recognizable as a model. People at the top who ha- who don't have to um, execute the change, through. Who, yeah. uh, who don't have to necessarily do anything different, might come up with the idea. They don't really think through and understand the impact and the consequences. They also don't have a... Um, an awareness that we all have a limited capacity to to change. As humans, we like stability. As humans, we like to be in control. And change, it need, we need to feel in control of that change so we can create change fatigue and we, we can change too much and lose the essence of what has made our uh, organisation great. So um, the way we need to get around that is to change um, the way organizations think about change and how they lead and manage change and understand that they need to genuinely allow participation across the whole organization and consider when is the right time to change, not just presume we have to continue changing and be aware that there are changes we have control over and changes we don't have control over. And as the world's becoming more and more volatile, those external changes are increasing, which means we may need to focus on more stability internally to weather yeah. these these storms. While we were talking about the Great Resignation, so is that also has something to do with the changing environment and the unstable market or the unstable organization or change fatigue that people were experiencing? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, great question. I think the the, the great resignation was um, a, a reflection of people who say, I'm not fulfilled doing what I'm doing. Now, if you really analyze the great resignation, what you find is that it was really something that took place in 
big Western yeah. countries like America, where it was um, blue collar workers who mm. realized because of this movement, because people were saying, I've got a choice, I can quit. I, this is not um, how I want to live my life. Although that was the fundamental motivation, um, because um, people quit, there was an opening for people to see an opportunity to get more money. So ultimately, it became financially driven, which reinforces organizations making choices around company future um, with the priority of finance. So it really was uh, financially driven, financially enabled. And now we're seeing um, that, that the turnover's got back to pre-COVID rates so much closer to that. So it, okay. it, was just a, it was just an economic opportunity that was created because of COVID. But we, we ignore that message at our peril. There was a message mm. there. People were saying, I need to move because I'm not fulfilled or satisfied. So, yeah, the, I think organizations need to really listen um, to that message and the voice of the, the employee is not going away. It's going to, because, as I mentioned earlier, because it can be connected, it is going to uh, strengthen and the voice of the employee needs to be heard. As organizational psychologists, we've gone from really being interested in economic uh, efficiency of an organization mm. to, to the well-being because organizations make decisions that directly impact the health and well-being of not just individuals but therefore our societies so yeah organizations are making very very big decisions and i think more and more are becoming aware that they have a corporate social responsibility so we need to create opportunities that are sustainable for everyone and being financially sustainable is only one measure but it's going to be something that is sustainable for the well-being and health of the individual, of a family, of a community. True. So, you know, as you speak about, um, because finance was a major reason why people were resigning, and now we are also seeing younger generation or even millennials getting a lot into gig economy because finance being their major lucrative thing that they are rather than being connected to just one organizations they are taking different contracts and freelancing work from around yeah the the job for life doesn't really exist um anymore that there are certain careers like the military red um that still can exist but even mm. with that uh, the retirement age um is such that you have a second career so it, it yeah. doesn't really exist where you have just one uh, career. You have many different careers throughout a, a lifetime and, and often within that many different um, jobs and projects and opportunities within the um, the actual um, uh, period during itself. But it can be very precarious and it can be very short term. And it can... so. I spent uh, New Year's Eve in um, New Year in Lisbon, and mm. when I'm, I, I like to travel and I like to learn about the how the people are experiencing life in different countries in different environments. And as an organisational psychologist, I'm always interested in, you know, what's the employment situation like? Because if we look at youth unemployment in the countries such as Spain, so the southern European nations, Spain, Italy, Portugal. Then mm. at nearly thirty percent youth unemployment, 
that's a that's huge a, number. Yeah, that's a major issue. So when I was talking yeah. um, to the young people in Lisbon, they were saying it's impossible to, first of all, be able to afford a property in the centre. So they have to live outside of the centre. Secondly, mm. it's impossible to save money. So being involved in this big economy is just a way of surviving and really in the moment leveraging the resources at you. But it's not allowing you to make longer-term decisions about your livelihood. So it's not allowing yeah. you to have a more sustainable livelihood. So what allows sustainable livelihood? Being in a, a job that offers you more security or being able to earn enough, uh, generate enough income for you to create options in your life where you can save money and um, take out a mortgage or pay for a property in an area that gives you the security you need. So right. I, I think I, I think the um, whilst it could feel um, instantly um, gratifying to get a job that gives you some income, the, the longevity of that model, the um, the world, you know, the rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poorer. We're seeing that, and the gig economy is one of the mechanisms that allow the rich to just mm. stay richer. So I, I'd I'd urge individuals to try to, um, to 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 challenge that and get some more of a balance between opportunity and security. When you talked about prioritizing well-being in the workplace and humanizing it, but at the end of the day, corporates are still, you know, money-making machines. They work on profits and they're all extensively desiring to create high-performance teams. So how do we strike a balance between well-being and mental health and high productivity? They're all interconnected. One of the roles of an organizational psychologist is that we like to believe that we're a, a science and that we have a lot of data that can help inform key decisions that leaders make. The financial impact of well-being in the workplace, it's significant. The people mm -hmm. are the ones who can execute your uh, strategy. You can't be a healthy organization without having healthy people. They're the same. If you are an unhealthy organization, there'll be uh, dysfunctional practices that will short-term may deliver, but long-term will actually have uh, significant impacts on your bottom line. So the mm. leader of the future, so for you as a, a Generation Z, but the leaders of the future, and it's not just Generation Z, we all, we're all we all responsible for being leaders of the future because the leader of the future is making the changes we want to see right here and now, not not um, continuing with the status quo and expecting the next generation to make the change. We have to make it here and now. So organizations need to want to learn more. So we've got artificial intelligence, we've got uh, hybrid working, we've got um, these challenges we're facing um, as society and organizations. We need to say, how can we come together as a government, as an industry, as academics, as professionals and practitioners, how can we come together and understand collectively the big issues that we're facing, the implications of decisions we make, and how we can make decisions that have sustainability financially, sustainability well-being-wise, and sustainability as societies. And so I think we need to um, learn more, understand more, understand the importance of really understanding human behavior in the workplace. 
many chief executives do not really understand fundamentals of human behavior. So I think a commitment of organizations that they need to be more open and learn more about people. It shouldn't be the domain of HR. Leadership is a role everyone should be responsible for. So every single organization, every subject, when you study uh, MBAs, when you study finance, accountancy, everybody should understand the role of the human and the human cost in that calculation. Yeah, because um, my friends who have graduated with their MBAs, they had a subject as organizational behavior. And I clearly remember them saying that, yeah, it was just one module and I do not like it at all. I just, you know, a come and go kind of a thing. Uh, it was more interesting with the finance part, the marketing part, wherever their interest lies. But with the coming uh, situations, I think organization behavior and human behavior would be one of the most crucial things to understand if you see yourself as the upcoming leader. I, I couldn't agree more. Everybody, um, regardless of their role or their background, is a leader. I very much believe how we understand leadership needs to change. It's not about the charismatic leader. It's about mm. an everyday leader. It's about the servant leader. The priority should always be the well-being of the team, and that will benefit NA and every organization. The more we all understand that we are leaders, and every decision that we make, every action we take, has an impact on the people around us, including ourselves. And the more True. people understand that, and the role of leadership, the role of people and behavior is integrated into every aspect of, of our work. As I said, that it should not be seen as the domain of a particular function such as HR. Hmm. Everybody should see, be accountable and responsible for the impact of, of, of people in the workplace. And with the desire to have a really healthy workplace where everyone feels safe, everyone feels recognized, significant, and that yeah. they matter. Yeah, yeah. Else the uh, the new people joining the organization, they are not going to take it otherwise or how things were going on in the past. So how do you see the future trend as an occupational psychologist? Like what is the upcoming trend with also with the coming of AI? Um, what are you excited about now? Yeah, I, I think um, the narrative for a while um, has in organizations and uh, within the profession has been the, um, the threats that artificial intelligence uh, bring. You know, um, you won't have jobs anymore. People um, have evolved from that position now. And I think yeah. we're seeing the advantages uh, of artificial intelligence that it will actually enable us to um, to be engaged in much more meaningful, purposeful work. So I think mm. one of the most important challenges is how do we ensure that artificial in intelligence, we have enough information and understanding about how we can be ethical with, the, um, with its implementation and mm. uh, legal um, so that we can protect the individual within that process. It has right. huge benefits, but it also we also need to be very ethical and very 
informed and aware of the impact of our decisions. But I think one of the most exciting areas for our profession is around job design. I think we can be much more creative about how we design jobs to be much, much more engaging. And just speaking to what was said before, where we have these silos, finance, mm. accounting, you know, we have all these uh, HR, we have silos. We have an opportunity yeah. for job design to 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 literally redesign everything. The, um, there's uh, Professor Sharon Parker. She's based in the in Australia, and she leads the um, the charge when it comes to job design. Yeah. I attended a lecture of hers um, a few years ago, and they carried out some research and said that HR. Uh, uh, appalling. They do not have the skills. This is ju just in general. We don't have skills really to um, meaningfully design jobs. So organizations design jobs and they gave them all sorts of scenarios and said these tasks need to be completed. What different ways would you uh, design a job? And they, they designed them in the way that was the, the put all the boring uh, repetitive jobs in one job description, you know, um, rather than saying if the goal is to make sure that our organization achieves its purpose, but the individual feels they're doing something meaningful and that they have variety in their mm. job, and they feel they're learning and developing, how would you design a job? I think that's how we need to start. Because otherwise, the way we design jobs, we look at logic and flow and say, oh, it makes much more sense for all of those admin jobs to be one person. Well, it might make uh, logical sense, but you've got to factor in. How's that helping an individual feel they contribute, build and connect relationships in an organization and feel inspired at work? So, so for me, yeah. redesigning jobs and really understanding hybrid working and how we can really, really make sure that mm -hmm. people get what they need from an organization, this sense of belonging, feeling connected, feeling we can contribute and that uh, our value is seen and that we're growing being mentored, being led, being inspired. that That's uh, hopefully what we're going to be seeing in the future. I, I am going to definitely dig into it because this is very interesting to me. So, Ingrid, my last question for you would be, how? what advice would you give to people who are getting into organizational psychology? Um, my advice would be, uh, first of all, um, in the US, IO psychology is one of the biggest growing areas. It's okay. So I mentioned before about uh, the C suite recognizing the role of uh, HR. Seventy percent believe it's going to be increasingly important in the future. So I think we're starting to see um, a merging of several factors that are going to make this a really, really exciting time to to be in organizational psychology. So I think it's a wonderful profession and you can make it your own. But because there aren't many clearly mapped out paths, as I mentioned earlier, um, unless you go, if you were somebody, so my, my advice is, first of all, understand yourself. If you're somebody who really likes structure and a, a much more um, clearly laid out path, you need to really think very carefully about the right path for you in this profession joining the government, joining an organization that's well-established in the selection and assessment field, which is becoming more exciting now because of artificial intelligence. You know, that might be a, 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 an inspired choice. 
a best fit whilst you develop a network because the majority of occupational psychologists are independent. You have to be really comfortable riding this uh, wave. If you like, you've got to be open to experience and comfortable connecting because it really is about building networks, building connections, but also understanding what resources you have. So I had a, um, so I mentioned Hermine Rabara. She's done a lot of work on career transitions. So you could okay. you can learn a lot from what she says about the secret to a career transition. How do you transition, be it from university or whatever you're doing? How do you transition into the field of occupational psychology? Um, one of the ways that you can uh, transition is by taking on projects that will give you the experience um, that you can put on your resume, and that can give you the confidence. So a colleague of my, a good friend of mine, her colleague wanted to get into occupational psychology and change management, and she um, not led a change before. She's an active member of her church community, so she mm-hmm. volunteered to um, lead a change program within her church community, and okay. that enabled her, that gave her the experience and the credibility and the confidence to then establish herself as a change consultant. Oh, that at least the opportunities lies everywhere. You just have to have the eye they're to see all it. around you. They're all around you. So move away from feeling it has to be a formal qualification. You know, look for projects where you can say, this is where I believe I fit. My values are there. I believe I've got the you know, the right skills. I just need you know, the opportunity. So, so find projects. Be, being able to do projects uh, that will open up paths and avenues and relationships and let you know, is that really something you're interested in is key. And then the next way is uh, we are what we do. So if you want to be doing occupational psychology, you've got to be doing it. So that goes back to the project idea and it goes back to, to yeah, what you're doing is the network you build. So the more yeah. you build networks with people who are doing it, the more you'll do it. So you can't mm-hmm. just say it. You've got to, you've got to act. Herminia actually um, says that we spend too much time in our own heads, and the um, we need to do the opposite. We need to actually take the be brave enough and take the uh, step towards whatever it is we're doing. The final thing I'd say is she talks about um, telling our story. So our work is a key part of our identity. So if we mm. don't believe that it's our identity, if we don't believe we are an occupational psychologist, um, we won't convince other people. So we've got to practice our story and practice it out loud. Go to networking events, have coffee with somebody where you say, I'm... Um, in the field of occupational psychology. This is my area of interest. This is where I've done my research. You've got to hear yourself saying it and it becomes part of your core identity. Then you'll start to believe that that's who you are. That is incredible, incredible. I mean, you know, in every part of the um, this podcast, there have been new insights that even me being in this field of work, that I was taken aback with uh, the kind of information that you have shared, your insights that you have shared. It has been truly, truly valuable. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you um, listening to me and giving me the opportunity. And if anyone wants to reach out, ask any um, uh, questions. And you mentioned the word insight. 
Insight's really important. Um, what I talked about acting is what Herminius is, is outsight. You know, we need to create a balance between how much we act and how much we you know, reflect and spend mm-hmm. time our, in, inside our own heads. And so if you become just aware of that, I think that will help. Just shifting more towards uh, acting, I think, will be very helpful. But I've really enjoyed talking to you and um, some great questions. And I love your enthusiasm and interest and look forward to continuing this conversation. And there you have it. Another episode of Psych and Success, packed with insights and real-world advice on business psychology, Gen Z, evolving workplace dynamics, culture, AI, and so much more. If you want to stay ahead of the curve and dig deep into the fabric of modern work, you know what to do. Hit that follow button, share this podcast with your network and drop us a review on Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you tune in. Your feedback not only supports us but also helps us connect with more inquisitive minds like yours. By the way, if you're looking to get in touch with today's guest, I've got you covered. Check out the description for their contact details. And if you feel inspired to chat directly with me about these compelling subjects, you can book a quick call through my Calendly or shoot me an email. All the links are in the description. This is your host, Kritika Kashyap, reminding you that the future of work is here and it's evolving fast. So let's explore it together. Until next time.